John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. Hear now the scripture. Jesus spoke these things. And lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Amen. John Knox, as he was dying, uh, asked his wife to daily and repeatedly through the day read from this chapter. Because in the words of Knox, this is where I first cast my anchor. That is, boys and girls, this was the text, the chapter that the Lord used To change John Knox's life and to bring him to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was the chapter that brought him so much comfort as he fought the last enemy in this world. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary noted that also in addition to John Knox, we had Melanchthon, who was Luther's close friend and compatriot in the Reformation in Germany, say this. There is no voice which has ever been Heard either in heaven or earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God to the Father. The high priestly prayer has five petitions in it. And tonight I am going to take up the first petition here in verses one through five. And that is that the Father might glorify the Son In order to bring glory back to the father, that is, boys and girls, just so you understand, Jesus here is praying in this first petition of his high priestly prayer that the father, God, the father would glorify God, the son. And in glorifying God, the son would end up glorifying himself. That is, Christ is praying here, not in a selfish way. He's praying for the increase In the glory to his father, as the father glories and glorifies the son. One of the things that we need to note as we go through the high priestly prayer is this theme of the union and the communion between the father and the son. There is in this passage, and one of the reasons I chose this passage was because I wanted us to meditate on some of the depths of the intra-Trinitarian fellowship of God, the communion, that is, between and among the three persons of the Trinity. One of the things that this chapter does is really show the richness and the depth of the communion between the Father and the, whole, and, and the Son 
And that is not to exclude the Holy Spirit. Uh, and we will show that in a, in a bit. But that we appreciate the intertrinitarian communion among the, the persons of the Trinity. And I think as we apprehend something of the glory of this communion and union of God in the three persons, it will enrich our own communion with God. And that was really my aim, that we could delve deeply into the, some of the most mysterious portions of God's word in order that as we mine those verses together, we might come away with a, a richer and deeper and more substantive personal communion ourselves with the three persons of God. As one of the Puritans said, I know not which person of the Godhead I love most. I love them all. I love the Father. I love the Son. I love the Holy Spirit. I commune with all three of these persons in the Godhead. Well, tonight we're going to begin to overhear the Son's communion, Jesus's communion with God the Father. And we are going to learn something of what our own communion with God the Father should be like and our communion with the Son and in the Holy Spirit. I also want us to see in this chapter something of the mystery of our own communion with one another. Because one of the things that we will discover as we plunge into this chapter is that Jesus prays in this chapter for our own intra, I-N-T-R-A, our own intra fellowship as the body of Christ, as the church. That is, our union and our communion with the Godhead has with one another the influence on our communion with each other. That is, as we grow in communion with God, we also grow in communion with one another. And we see that here at the Lord's table tonight, which, by the way, is the context. Commentators think of this prayer that uh, William Hendrickson believes that they're still in the upper room when Jesus does this work of the high priestly prayer. And that he lifts up his eyes, not necessarily meaning that he's outside, but just as a gesture to the Father. It says here, Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. Uh, that is not to say that they might not still have been indoors. But note here the context. My point is this, that the context was either at or near the Lord's Supper. And that as Jesus is praying for the communion of the Son with the Father and the communion within the Godhead and the glory that is there between and among the members of the Godhead, there is a communion that Jesus also prays for within the members of the body of Christ. And so as we come to the Lord's table, we are reminded of our communion with Christ in the bread and in the cup. But we're also reminded that we are together partaking of that bread and of that cup. There is a communion that is shared among us because we are taking of the same body of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to divide this lesson tonight into two parts. The first one is taken from verse one, as well as verse four and five verses four and five. And that is Jesus's petition to glorify the son in order to glorify the father. Jesus prays to glorify the son in order to glorify the father. Secondly, from verses two and three, we are going to see that Jesus Prays that that his people might have eternal life, that his people might have 
eternal life. Let me look with you here at our text again. Look in your Bible, verse 1, first of all, and then verse 4 and 5. Notice here the repetition of the theme to glorify. So Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Now, what is that hour? That hour, of course, is the hour of the cross is upon him. The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And then you'll note in verse four, I glorify you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Verse five. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. There it is again with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So Jesus here is praying to the Father. And note here that though Christ is fully God himself, he as the Son, the eternal Son, the eternally begotten Son, is praying in his humanity with his deity in that one person to his heavenly Father. What we see here, boys and girls, is that Jesus is our priest. He is making intercession for the church with the father. Jesus is a priest today, even though he's in glory. Jesus is praying for you today. We see the benefits of Jesus's prayers. For example, when he told Peter that Satan sought to sift him and he said, but Peter, I have prayed for you. You know, the reason Peter turns back to the Lord and Judas does not, even though on that same night it would have been difficult for us to determine who's the backslidden one and who is the apostate one. The difference was the prayer of Jesus. It was the prayer of Jesus by which Peter was brought back to communion with Christ. And was able to say three times over after the resurrection, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus prays for you and for me. You and I are desperately in need of the prayers of Jesus. We should never, ever think that we do not need Jesus' prayers. And yet, as disciples of the Lord, we see that this ministry belongs to us as well, the Bible says. That is the ministry of intercession, not that we are high priests, but we are a kingdom of priests, we are told in the New Testament. And so we also need to imitate Jesus. We need to look to heaven and look to the Father and pray through Christ in the spirit. The church must be a praying church if she is to be like her savior. The church is the bride of Christ and she must ready herself for her husband. How does she do that? She does so by prayer. So I ask you by way of application, will 2020 and the rest of the decade find you making priestly intercession for the church? Will Jesus find you on your own knees this year? Will you be in the secret place this year? Don't rely only on family worship, boys and girls, for your prayer life. Don't rely only on the prayer life of your parents. You need to be seeking the Lord at a young age. You are old enough, some of you, five years old, six years old, seven years old, to pray prayers. What what is prayer? It's an offering unto God of, of the things we desire. What do we desire? We desire the Lord. 
Now, this hour, as I mentioned here, this hour that has come upon Jesus, what is this hour? Well, this hour is the, the final and greatest humiliation of Christ. It's the hour of his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his death, his drinking of the cup of the Father's wrath. All of this is under that subhead of the hour. And what does Jesus want? Well, Jesus wants to glorify the Father in that hour. The Son and the Father together are glorified in the obedience of Jesus to the Father. The Son is glorified in his humiliation as Jesus goes to the cross and as Jesus is raised from the dead three days later and as Jesus ascends into heaven and as Jesus is coronated at the right hand of the Father. All of these things glorified the Father. The Son is glorified. He's exalted. In the resurrection, the ascension, the coronation. We see the son glorifying the father in in his death. For example, we see various supernatural signs and wonders taking place as Jesus is on the cross. We see the sun is darkened, even though it's 12 o'clock, it's noon. And yet there's an outer Egyptian darkness, as Beaky calls it, falling on the cross. Jesus is glorifying the father by taking our sins and dying for them. The graves, we are told when Jesus dies, the graves are opened and many of the saints are raised bodily from the dead at the death of Jesus. You don't hear much preaching about that, do you? But Christ was glorified in in the moment of death by that miracle. The holy curtain in the temple. Jesus is being crucified outside the city walls of Jerusalem. At Golgotha, but inside at the temple, the holy curtain separating the holy of holies from the rest of the holy place in the temple is torn in two from the very top to the very bottom at the moment of Jesus's death. As he says, it is finished. God rents the curtain. Because the high priest now has gone into the holy of holies and he's put his blood on the mercy seat for us. Jesus is glorified In all of that, and in that, he glorifies the Father. The Father is glorified by the Son accomplishing the Father's plan. You shouldn't think of this either as the Son unwillingly taking up his Father's plan. The Father and the Son agree to this plan. The Father and the Son are in unity in this plan. And the Father is glorified in his mercy to sinners and sending Jesus into the world And allowing his son to be crushed and raising Jesus in the vindication of Jesus' righteousness. All of this glorifies Jesus and it glorifies the Father. Jesus glorifies the Father in his work, in his earthly ministry, preaching, healing, raising the dead. Jesus brings the word in, in his preaching. And people come to faith in Christ by the work of the Spirit. Healing. Jesus went about doing good. He glorified God in doing good. He healed people of dreadful diseases. Think about leprosy. What a terrible, awful thing. And yet Jesus would touch them and he allowed the paralyzed to stand and to walk. He brought relief to poor people who were afflicted with demon possession. He raised the dead, such as the son of the widow and Jairus' daughter and Lazarus. And in all these things, Jesus was glorifying the Father. And the Father declared from heaven twice, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. But the greatest glorification of the Father was in the death of Jesus for sinners. This is, this is the climax. 
the death, the resurrection of Christ for the justification of sinners and for the application of the spirit. As Christ ascends into heaven, he gives graciously the spirit. God exalts Christ. He glorifies Christ by raising Christ from the dead, by bringing Christ into heaven, by seating Christ at his right hand. That, that's tremendously significant, boys and girls. You need to understand that Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father is significant because it says that the Father is demonstrating that the Son shares that glory with the Father. You know, this is a God who said, I won't share my glory with another. And it shows the deity of Christ, doesn't it? That Christ being God is able to share this glory with the Father, the Son and the Father together. And so having been glorified, what does he do? Well, the Son glorifies the Father further by then sending the Spirit. And as Jesus gives the Spirit to the church, the Father His glory increases all the more. Now it's the nations are being brought to Christ. More and more people are coming to faith in Christ. People are praising the Lord today all over the world because Christ has been glorified. And he is glorifying the Father in his exalted ministry. And so we go on. If you look at verse 5, now Jesus petitions the Father to grant him the co-glory that they shared in eternity past There again, there's a little verse just to keep in mind if a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door. That Christ is the eternal son and he shared a glory with the father. Now, why does he say that this glory should uh, be restored? Notice here he says, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory with which I had with you before the world was. Well, because Jesus left the world of glory and he came into this world By way of humiliation. It's a Philippians 1 point that Jesus is making. What do I mean by Philippians 1? You remember in Philippians 1, the Apostle Paul said that Christ, being the eternal Son of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself, not of his deity, as the liberals say. He emptied himself of the prerogatives of the glory of being the Son of God. Taking to the form of of a bondservant. Even serving To the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, what Jesus was doing is he was, in in a way, setting aside his glory for the purpose of becoming a servant. The Son of Man came into the world to serve, not to be served. Not to look for glory, but to give glory to God in humiliation. And now Christ is saying, now that I've come to the end of my earthly ministry, Lord, glorify me. With that glory which I had with you in eternity past. When I always was, is the eternal son of God before my incarnation. And we see that this was a promise too, wasn't it? That the son had always been promised glory. Psalm 2. Sit at my right hand. The father will give the nations to the son. Daniel 7. What do we see? The son of man coming up to the ancient of days. Where he is given what? Daniel says he's given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Well, who is that son of man? That's Jesus. It's a picture, it's a prophecy of the ascension of Christ in Daniel 7. Now let me go on here. Verse 2 and 3. Now I want to make some applications before we come to the Lord's table. 
We see also that Christ has come to give eternal life. Look at verse two in your text. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh. That that all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The father gave the son authority in order that the son might save all flesh. Now, what does that mean? All flesh. Well, commentators suggest that it means all the elect of God from all the tribes and the nations. The father gives the son his people, his elect. The son, having been having been given the elect, the son secures the salvation of the elect on the cross. So here again, just so we're clear, boys and girls, the father chooses or what we call elects those who will be his people from all over the world, a great multitude that no man can number. And he gives them to the son and he says, son, these are the people I give to you. And the thought and the son says, father, thank you for giving me these your people. I will fulfill All that I have to do to secure their salvation. I will render perfect obedience to the law. I will become a man. I will submit myself as a a man born of a woman yet without sin to the law of God. I will obey that law in word, thought, and deed. I will die according to the penalty of that law. And I will pay the, the, the demands of the law as a substitute for your people. And so the father gives His people to the son. The son then secures their salvation. The son gives eternal life to all that the father gives him. The son dies for the sins of his people. He wears the guilt of his people. He wears the shame. He substitutes for his people in death and in hell. All that the father gives to the son, the son gives eternal life. Not one of them is lost. And one of the I think we, things we should see in this is that eternal life is a gift from God. It is a gift from the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The Father gives you the gift of eternal life in choosing you. The Son gives you the gift of eternal life in dying for you and rising from the dead for you. The Spirit, though the Spirit is not explicitly mentioned here in this particular verse, but the Spirit gives you eternal life in regenerating you. We are told, for example, later in the Scriptures. All three persons give eternal life to sinners. They're all involved. Your salvation is a Trinitarian salvation. It is a triune salvation. This is why our worship must always reflect the triune nature of God. I'm worrying about evangelical churches that keep saying God, 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 God. But that's all you get is the word God. You don't get the three distinct persons of the Trinity. That's the, one of the biggest revelations in the New Testament is in the Great Commission. When he says, go and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. He names the persons of the God. And friends, that was that was a huge mystery up until that point. And the, and the trouble thing, troubling thing I see in evangelicalism is today is evangelicals are almost like pretending that the three persons of the Trinity are not even explicitly named. I, I listen to prayers being prayed and I watch, you know, uh, worship videos and such. And, and you just hear them talking about God. 
As though God has not revealed himself more fully to us than God. You know, it always worries me. I've shared this with you. You know, I I, I don't want to bank on this absolutely, but it always worries me when I hear people pray and all they can say is God. Because it makes me wonder whether they actually experientially have communion with God. Because the Bible tells us that the Spirit enables us to cry, Abba, Father. And when I hear a person only using the, the, what in Hebrew would be the word Elohim, that concerns me. And it concerns me when that's all I hear in worship services of evangelical churches. Is what was, you know, Elohim was the most basic of all the revelatory names of God. I mean, that's what Abraham and Isaac and Jacob got. Uh, you know, you know, even Moses got something more than Elohim when he asked, you know, who should I say sent me? And the Lord says, Yahweh, that's a new revelation. Well, what I'm trying to suggest here is in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, you have even a far superior revelation of who God is in the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, and if our worship and our prayers are not triune nature, in the, in the character of our worship, there, there's a serious deficiency there. All three persons give eternal life to us. All three persons are involved in the covenant of redemption. In the planning, the execution, and the application of our salvation. You know, uh, I think it was Joel Beakey said, you know, when one person in the Godhead acts on our behalf, he he does so with all three persons of the Godhead. That is, that one person of the Trinity does not do anything independently of the others. And so this this idea that um, the the Trinity being diminished is, is very troubling. Our worship must be To God, the Father, in Christ, in the Spirit. To the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. That must be the way we worship God. You know, I saw a beautiful picture I was reading, and uh, I noticed in the book of Revelation, and I, I don't know that I'd ever noticed this before, but you have the great white throne, God, the Father, there represented on the great white throne, And you have the, I think I told you, the prostrate 24 elders lying in front of the throne. But in between them and that throne is the Lamb, we're told. The picture that you come to the throne through the person and the work of Jesus is such a beautiful picture. And that the seven spirits of God are there before the throne. The seven spirits being the perfect spirit, the Holy Spirit, seven spirits. Being a wonderful symbolic number for perfection. The Holy, Holy, Holy Spirit of God. There before the throne with the Son and the Father. Well, verse 2 teaches us that there is an elect. There's a chosen people here. Jesus says that to, whom, that to all whom you have given him. Who is that whom? Well, that is, the Father designates a specific people to the Son. The Father has chosen all his own 
by name. He chose you by name. All including put your name there. He gave to the son. The father specified you in eternity past. You can read it in Ephesians one. That we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the earth. You can read it in Romans nine teaching about the election of the father quite plainly. Jacob in Romans nine was chosen before the foundation of the earth. Esau was not chosen. Christ died for the sins of Jacob. Christ did not pay the full penalty for Esau's sins. Otherwise, Esau would be in heaven now. The father cannot send. uh, The father cannot send his son, Christ, to pay for the full penalty of their sin and then condemn the sinner. No condemnation was pronounced for Jacob. Esau never knew such pardon or peace. Though God greatly blessed him, God made Esau a great nation. God gave him wonderful things, but Esau despised his birthright. He would not turn back to the father as Jacob did at the Jabbok River when he prayed out of desperation. Let me make some applications to this. We see that the Bible here teaches there is an elect. And one of the things that the New Testament, though not in this text, but in other places, teaches by way of application is from 2 Peter 1.10. And that is that you need to make your election sure and certain. You need to seek out true assurance that you are in Christ Jesus. That you are one of those who the Father has given to the Son. The Bible says that's, a, that's an exhortation. It's a command. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10. He says, therefore, brethren... He says, be all the more diligent in 2020. No, he didn't say 2020. Be all the more diligent, but he meant that too. To make certain about his calling. Who's that his? The Father. Make certain about the Father's calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. How do I Make certain. Well, you have to read the few verses above that to understand. And I'll just let me run over them real quickly. First of all, you need to be diligent in the ways of Christ. Bible says first thing you want to do, if you want assurance that you're one of God's elect and chosen, you are one of those that the father has given to the son for whom the son died. You got to be diligent in the ways of Christ. Friends, you can't use your Calvinism to be a pillow of laziness, said Roger Nicole to me and our classmates long ago. You need to use the means of grace. Number two, you need to apply faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And then in addition to faith, the Bible says you need to apply moral excellence. You need to seek to live above reproach. Keep a good conscience before God and men. You need knowledge. You need to study. You need to sweat to know more of the Bible. You need to read your Bible. You need to discipline your life. You need self-control. You can't live like the Gentiles any longer. You need to get a handle on your time. You need perseverance. When things get tough, you need to keep going in Christ. Not quit. Rely on God all the more. Pray more. If, if God is making your life hard and miserable, he's giving you trials and tribulations and sorrows and griefs. That's just an opportunity to 
Rely on God more and more and more to pray more and more to cry out to him more and more. Show your utter dependence upon God to deliver you out of those troubles, out of the depths of your despair. You need perseverance. You need godliness, brotherly kindness. You can't just be studying theology books in the privacy of your home. You need you need to be out there remembering what true religion is, as I prayed, remembering the widow visiting Lee Tracy this year. Brothers, if you aren't visiting Lee Tracy, brothers, check your religion. Please. That's what James says. That's true religion. Visiting Lee Tracy. Brotherly kindness. Love. And then he says you've got to be increasing in all of it. Growing in all of it. All that the Father gives to the Son, the Son gives eternal life by His work. We need to make certain that we are among those who have been chosen by God. Well, what is eternal life? I'm going to wrap it up with this thought. What is eternal life? Verse 3, notice here, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This may be one of the most important questions for some of you tonight. Is what is eternal life? It is union and a communion with the Father and with the Son in the Spirit. It is to know the triune living God. There is no other God. There is only one God. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, Jesus says. And, you know, the the Bible makes an illustration. You say, how do I know God? Let me say what it is not by negation. It's not just knowing the right answers. Satan knows the right answers. But he has no union and communion with God. He is the faith of a demon. So what what does it look like then? Well, the the Bible says it looks like marriage. Probably the greatest earthly parallel we have to eternal life, the union and communion that we have with God is found in marriage, that the two become one. That there's this great bond, a union that only God can sever ultimately through the death of one of the two parties. And, and Paul says this is a great mystery to speak about this union. And he says, I speak not so much about earthly marriage, but about Christ and his church to know God To have eternal life is not merely to get the right knowledge of him, though we need right knowledge, but it is to unite with him through faith. It means to partake of his person by faith. It means to lay hold of him. It it, it means to be like the Roman centurion and say, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you in my house. Just say the word. I'll believe you. It's like the woman with the bleeding problem. And she says, if I could just touch the edge of his garments, I'll be healed. It's like the the Syrophoenician woman who won't take no for an answer. She's got a demon possessed child and she won't give up. Even though Jesus says you're, you know, essentially calls her a dog. And she latches hold of that. She says, oh, even the dogs get the crumbs from the table. It means to partake by faith in his person, his work, the God man, Jesus Christ in the flesh who lived for you, died for you. It means to believe, to trust, to obey, 
with evangelical faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, to recognize his lordship over your life, to love him, to cherish him above all, to count him as your ruddy one, the chief among 10,000, to put it in the words of the Song of Solomon. It means to commit yourself unreservedly to him, to seek him, to make him the, the motive of your life, to know him and to be known by him. And yes, I say this reverently, to eat him. And drink him to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Nothing caused the Jews to stumble more than those words of Jesus. When he said, if you want eternal life, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. That by faith, we seek to have Christ in us, just like we would eat food and drink and it becomes a part of us. We, by faith, eat of Christ. We feed on Christ and he becomes a part of us as his spirit works within us. We increasingly grow in our communion with Christ as we are sanctified by Christ. Being filled with the spirit, we're commanded to be filled with the spirit of Christ. This eternal life, this is glory. This is joy unspeakable. This is heaven that is to be tasted in this world but it is to be realized fully in eternity. This is life. It is Christ. It is not the streets of gold. It's not the crown that I'll be given. It's Christ. And with him, the full communion of the Godhead and the Father and the Spirit. Let me ask by way of application tonight. Will you have eternal life? Will you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God tonight and confess your transgressions if you've never done so truly. That they might be atoned for maybe for the first time under the blood of Jesus. Maybe there's someone here who's been resisting the Holy Spirit. He's wooing you to this abundant life. He pleads with your spirit to become one of the children of God. Will you resist him? Remember what Psalm 95 says. Don't resist the spirit of God. Don't be like the children of Israel in the wilderness who died in the wilderness. For they heard the voice of the Lord, but they would not hearken. If the voice of the shepherd is calling you, urging you to faith, to union and communion with Christ, run to him. Do not resist him. Seek him. Make it your primary business until you close with Christ. Will you hearken to the voice of the good shepherd? The, the Bible says the sheep know his voice. The good shepherd is trying to lead you into happiness. He's trying to lead you into green pastures and still waters and to have peace with God and reconciliation with him and with others. Will you strive against that? Will you call upon the Lord tonight? Will you make it your business to seek him anew? Maybe some of you need just to recommit yourself to Jesus Christ tonight. To renew the covenant. That's what our fathers used to call it. Renewing the covenant. I think you might find some of you a great blessing to your soul. If you would even pledge yourself anew in a new year, a new decade of the 20s to Christ. To make a personal covenant with him that he would be your God and you would be his people. Will you not be among those that the father has chosen Will you not gladly become one to whom the Father has given to the Son? 
Will you allow another gospel sermon to pass over you without being affected? Are you going to be like a rock in your heart and in your soul? Just as the rock resists the water, your soul resists the work of the Spirit of God. You know, God freely offers Christ to us all. You say, well, Pastor, I don't know that I want to receive Christ because I don't know if I'm one of the elect. That's not the point. That's not the way you go about it. You go to Christ to determine you are one of the elect. You don't try to meditate on whether I'm one of the elect to determine whether I go to Christ. The gospel is inviting you to Christ. You know, did you know the, the, the Puritans used to say that God offers himself to the reprobate as sincerely as he does to the elect? Isn't that not amazing? That, that God pleads with sinners as truly and sincerely with the Esau's as he does with the Jacob's. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. Will you not improve upon your baptism and say, I am baptized. I am in union with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Will you allow your baptism to speak against you tonight and even on the day of judgment? That you were visibly brought into the union of the church and communion with God, but you did not make good on that baptism. You did not make the promises of Christ. Yes and amen in your life. Because you never applied the gospel to yourself by faith, surrendering joyfully everything to him. Will you not say, come Lord Jesus, will you not lay hold of eternal life? God offers you life tonight. And he says, and I in his name, choose life tonight. Why would you choose death? Why would you choose misery? Why would you choose sorrow? Why would you choose grief? Why would you choose condemnation? Why would you choose separation from God? Separation from loved ones? Why would you choose the agony of the flames of hell? Why would you choose the place of torment? Why would you choose where the worm is never satisfied? Where there is gnashing and weeping? Take life. Take Christ. He's being offered to you. Let's pray.